Reading this morning from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their impressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Thanks, Laura. Good morning again. I was wondering why Dad and Rod let me have such a great passage, but of course it must be because it's the Sunday before the election. What they didn't know was that the Cubs were going to win the World Series. So I can avoid the election entirely and just talk about the Cubs. But a special good morning to you Cubs fans out there. It's been 108 years. Amazing. 108 years of waiting. How many of you were alive? Anybody? 108 years ago? Nobody. If, if it was going to happen, it would have to be first service, right? Second service? So it was 1908, the Cubs won the World Series the last time. That was the second time in a row. They were two-time defending champs. And then they went to the World Series seven times between 1908 and 1945. So nobody was going to guess that it was going to be 108 years before they won again. Until 1945. And if you remember the story, The Curse of the Billy Goat... Um, Bill Sionis, who owned Billy Goat Tavern, had a Billy Goat in the stadium. And in Game 4 of the World Series, they kicked Bill Sionis and his Billy Goat out of the stadium. And as he left the stadium, he said, Them Cubs, they ain't gonna win no more. And he was right. For 71 years, they didn't get back to the World Series. For 71 years. I was living in Chicago in, uh, in 2003... And if you remember, if you're a big baseball fan or a big Cubs fan, you remember 2003 because it was a good team that had good pitchers. And they were five outs away from going to the World Series in 2003. Five outs. They were in the bottom of the eighth ahead 3-0. And uh, Luis Castillo of the Marlins hit a pop foul. It was a foul ball. It didn't make any difference to the the game. And Moises Alou settled up, up next to the stands and was about to catch it. 
when Steve Bartman, a lifetime, lifelong Cubs fan, reaches out to try and catch a foul ball, which is what you do in a stadium, right? But as he reached out to catch the ball, he knocked it away, and Moises Alou didn't catch it. And what my friends who are Cubs fans remember from being at the stadium, I had friends down there at the stadium at the time, they said as soon as that play happened, every Cubs fan knew what it meant. The curse was alive. Every Cubs fan, he said, we knew we had lost the game, the series, we weren't going back to the World Series. He knew, and he was right. Bill, the Bartman ball, they call it. Cubs fans have been trained by a hundred years of losing that when anything bad at all happens, they put on their sunglasses of fear, their eyes of fear. They know that once something bad happens, it's going to go really bad. The Cubs gave up eight runs in that inning and lost the game. They put on eyes of fear instead of continuing with eyes of maybe optimism or something. For us as Christians, when the world starts getting bad, do we put on eyes of fear or do we put on eyes of faith? Isaiah in their passage today is reminding us we can now live with eyes of faith rather than eyes of fear. It's an amazing passage. Uh, glorious picture of Jesus. Can we see reality for what it really is? Or do we start putting on our glasses of fear and start living out of fear? Let's pray and then we'll walk into this passage together. Holy Father, you are good and kind and loving and gracious to us. In the middle of darkness that we choose to walk in, you bring your light. In the middle of the darkest night, you bring your dawn. You shine your light on the good and on the evil, on the rich and the poor, on the oppressor and the oppressed. I pray today that you would remove our blinders and help us to see the light, to see reality for what it really is, to take off our eyes of fear and to help us walk with eyes of faith, trusting in your goodness and mercy in life. We love you, Father, and we pray in the powerful, mighty name of Jesus who sits at your right hand, interceding for us and ruling over creation. Amen. Just a reminder of where we are in Isaiah. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, right in the middle of Isaiah chapter 7 to 12, which some scholars have called the book of Emmanuel. And they're called the book of Emmanuel because Isaiah brings a number of prophecies talking about the future Messiah who's going to come and rule on David's throne and overthrow the nations and all nations will come and worship God there in Israel. So Isaiah has this number of prophecies starting in chapter 7 and going through chapter 12. 7 to 12. I was doing the Hebrew for you. Um, I'll put it in English for you. So 7 to 12 has, has a number of these prophecies of Emmanuel, this coming Messiah, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And last week, Rod did a great job of helping us to see that in the middle of really hard circumstances and really bad regional politics, God wants to give the people the gift of himself. God is with us. So let's look at this passage. Darkness to light is where I want to start. The people that Isaiah is speaking this prophecy to are in darkness. It's really, really bad, if you know the backstory. Assyria is coming and has begun their invasion from the north, and they have started invading 
the kingdom of Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom, Judah the southern kingdom. They have started invading Israel and they are going to wipe out the northern nation of Israel. They are essentially going to wipe out the southern kingdom of Judah as well. God miraculously saves Jerusalem, but the rest of the nation is pretty well destroyed. The invasion begins, it's interesting where the geographical references that Isaiah points to, the invasion begins through Naphtali and goes through Zebulun. Naphtali is a northern tribe of the 12 tribes of, of, of Israel. It's one of the northern tribes. Zebulun is right below Naphtali. And the invasion goes right through Naphtali and Zebulun. By the way of the sea, which is a reference to the trade route that goes from Europe and Mesopotamia through to Egypt. So the way of the sea is another uh, way of saying this is the route by which Assyria comes to destroy the nation of Israel. The darkness of this invasion isn't the only darkness, though. The darkness of this invasion is the result of the darkness of the people's sin. They have been worshiping false gods. They have been falsely worshiping Israel's God, Yahweh. But Isaiah points to specific things as well. They don't take care of the poor, widows, and orphans. They take advantage of those in need. They're self-reliant and they're proud. Their darkness is a result of their sin. And fear and sin together have a really good way of narrowing our vision so that we can't see what God is up to. When Isaiah says it's dark, part of what he means is they can't see what God's doing. They have the blinders on. It's like they put on sunglass after sunglass after sunglass And they're trying to walk around, but they can't see by the light. When we let fear and sin train us on how to see the world, we can't see what God is doing. We can't see what he's up to, how he's working in the world. And so we live by narrower and narrower and narrower sets of choices. So that all we have left is bad choices or another bad choice. That's all we're left with. For an example, it's like if you... If you've been in Boise long, you know inversion season, right? It's like inversion season. It's cold. You can't see the sun. It smells bad. So Grace and I walk our kids to school every day. And as we're walking along in inversion season, I keep my head down. I keep my hands in my pockets because, and I don't want to smell anything. You can't see or, so I don't look up because there's not much to see. And I don't like what I see. Right? So I'm essentially walking in darkness. My choices and my field of vision is very narrow and small. Not like the, the week we had this last week, which glorious sunrises and just a beautiful, beautiful day. And you can see everything that God is doing. Um, it's a wonderful difference. I mean, it was a wonderful week. Big difference though, right? Or like our oldest daughter, Naomi, who um, loves crafts. She does crafts all the time. She has a shirt that says, all I need are God and crafts. Um, She's a very crafty young woman. um, And I'm very proud of her for lots and lots of things. Um, One of the things she's really good at is using up all of the craft supplies. So we don't have very many craft supplies. And she comes and asks, hey, can I have some tape? And we're like, you used all the tape. Can I have a stapler? No, you used all the staples. And actually recently she just broke the stapler. So... But what she's really good at is keeping her eyes open on other things that might be used. Like she'll find hair ties and use them to keep things together. And she'll find pieces of paper that she can use as dresses to make, you know, dresses for her dolls. And she's really amazing at thinking outside the box 
thinking very creatively to find other useful, interesting ways of doing what she's trying to do, of crafting. If we live with eyes of fear and sin, we can't see the other creative ways that God might be working. Our field of vision is too narrow. We're too dark. We've been darkened by sin and fear. Not like Naomi. She can see beyond what's the narrow possibilities. In the same way, when we are stuck with eyes of fear and sin, we compromise with the world and we fail to see what God is doing and how we might participate. Do our lives look any different than the world around us? Can we imagine living differently than the world lives? God doesn't want for us to be trapped choosing between evil choices. God has good for us. Jesus really is king on his heavenly throne, ruling with justice and righteousness. That is, if we can't imagine Jesus as king, then we can't see the world as it really is. He really is king. And if we can't see that, then we're still trapped in darkness. We need his light to set us free. I experienced that in the lead up to this sermon, actually, in uh, pretty powerful ways over the last several weeks. I was preparing for the, for the sermon, studying the passage, and then on a Thursday, Grace and I had a date, and we had a really great but emotional conversation. It was a really good conversation, but it was emotional, and so we were kind of emotional. And then Thursday night, or Friday morning, I had a dream. And this dream, I woke up from this dream feeling guilty and depressed and believing lies about myself. And I went downstairs and I prayed and was repentant, and, but I was oppressed all day. And Grace came downstairs and I was going to tell her about this dream in the morning, except she had received a phone call that morning saying that her beloved grandpa had died in the night. And so we're just overwhelmed with, with life at the moment. And I was all day in this oppression all day Friday. And finally in the evening, I got a chance to talk to Grace about it. And I said, I'm just feeling guilty and overwhelmed. And I can't, I, I can't see beyond kind of the guilt and the overwhelming. And she said, oh, it just looks like you're having... She didn't say it this flippantly, sorry. She said, it sounds to me like spiritual attack because you're getting ready to preach. And I said, oh, oh, I just hadn't put that together. And immediately she prayed for me and I was free of the whole thing. But I couldn't, in my fear and guilt, I couldn't see beyond to what was really happening. We need each other for those moments. I couldn't do it myself, but she let in the light of God into my situation and set me free, and it was a gift. We need God's light to be able to see what's really happening around us, don't we? Israel and Judah at this moment are trapped in darkness. They are choosing to blindly walk with eyes of fear, and reject God's corrective lenses of light and light and faith that God is offering them in Isaiah. Instead of evils, God gives us good. He offers glory right in the place where the evil shows up. That's what the passage says. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, there he will bring his glory. He will make that place glorious. In his big purposes and our terrible circumstances also, God is offering himself, Emmanuel. He is not a distant father who just goes and does his big purposes. He is a close father who's mighty to do the works that God, is, that God has for him to do. 
but he is also close to us. He walks with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And remember, glory emerges out of Zebulun and Naphtali, in the place where cruelty and darkness and evil become most clear to Israel. There, God will show his glory. The, the New Testament writers in the early church see this as a very clear reference to Jesus. The land of Naphtali is the land of Galilee, where Jesus begins his ministry. The land of Zebulun contains the town of Nazareth, where Jesus is raised. Out of Naphtali and Zebulun, where Assyria comes to destroy, out of that place comes Jesus, the king. The glory and fulfillment of God's promises to Israel will come from the place that is darkest at the time of Isaiah. The light dawns out of the darkest places. There will be freedom in the land and beyond its borders. The way of the sea is open. The Gentiles are invited into the kingdom with Jesus. The nation increases. The joy of the harvest. There will be that kind of joy. There will be spoils of war. The oppressor will be thrown off as when Gideon threw off the land of Midian. And if you remember that reference, the the Midianites, where Gideon came with 300 men. God said, actually, you have too many men. Let's narrow the the field down to 300 men. This was very clearly God's work in throwing off Midian. Gideon was not this great warrior. In fact, he was a scaredy cat. God did a great work in the same way. God will do a great work that has very little to do with Israel's willingness to to be God's instrument. And then the last reference here in verse 4, every boot... Of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be no more war. God is going to eliminate war. He's going to set the people free. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful kingdom. Okay, so how does God intend to bring light to the people? What kind of dawn are we looking out for? Isaiah gives us an answer, and it's an obnoxious, unrealistic answer, if you look at the text. It's obnoxious and unrealistic. Isaiah's answer is a child. A child. This obnoxious because Isaiah has already been prophesying about children and it hasn't done any good for King Ahaz of Judah and for the nation. I'm sure they would have been annoyed by this answer. And it's unrealistic because a child cannot solve any of the problems that Israel is facing. They have very serious geopolitical problems. They need a political strategist and a military leader. A child is neither of those. And I love children. We just had a beautiful baby dedication when Sam and Christy brought David uh, to be dedicated to the Lord. They are wonders. But David is not going to be solving uh, America's problems, is he? Let's just put it this way. God may or may not give us answers that satisfy our fears and anxieties. Sometimes God's answers don't satisfy our fears and anxieties. That's not his goal. He will not be ruled by our rebellious fears. He will not bow down to our false dichotomies and realistic anxieties. He will not confine himself to our small circumstances. God's purpose is to exalt himself, to rid his world of evil, And to make you and me holy rulers in the new creation. God will fulfill his purposes. You and I might settle for less than God's best, but God will not be settling. He will 
have his purposes fulfilled. So the answer isn't going to fit their fears. Instead, he's going to do something different. Why a child? Well, I want to suggest two reasons. The first, God wants to say that in the future, Israel will still be having babies. In other words, it looks like to their eyes of fear, Assyria will come and completely wipe the nation off the map. A nation wiped off the map will not be having babies. A child is evidence that Israel still is having children. They still exist in the future. And I want to thank Marianne Porter for that insight. That was a great insight, I thought. And second, God offers a child as a rebuke to those who think that worldly strength and power and violence are God's plans for advancing his kingdom. That is not God's way of moving his kingdom. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even things that don't exist, to bring to nothing the things that do exist, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. God's power is perfected in weakness, and His grace is sufficient for us. And so in the face of Assyria, God offers a child. Now let's look at the details of this, of Isaiah's description of this child. First, the government will be on his shoulders. This is very unlike the reference in verse 4, where it says the oppressors have put the weight on the people's shoulders, on Israel's shoulders. Instead, Isaiah says the government will be on the child's shoulders. Let's explore that. If you've watched President Obama or any president who's been president for a while, it seems like in those four or eight years, they age five or six times that length. President Obama was, what, 47 when he was elected? He looks like he's 65 now at least, right? Presidents, good leaders, get a lot older really quickly because they bear the weight of governing. Every good leader carries a lot of weight for the things that they know and for the traumas they see and for the mistakes they make and for their decisions that impact other people. The oppressors in verse 4 are not good leaders. They're tyrants. They make decisions for other people, and then when they make mistakes, they put the weight of those mistakes on others. They say, I didn't make a mistake, you did. Now you clean up this mess. Right? The child will bear the weight of governing on his shoulders. He will take responsibility for making decisions and dealing with the consequences. He will see and experience traumas and learn to deal with them. The child will demonstrate more mature and responsible leadership than the rulers of the nations. He will be a good leader. More than that, we know this particular child. This particular child, Jesus the Christ, bore on his shoulders a weight heavier than any human should have had to bear. At the cross, he bears the weight that belongs to all humanity. Our sin and shame were with him as he bore the cross on his shoulders and walked the streets of Jerusalem past the Israelite leaders, past the Roman leaders, he bore the weight on himself. And then, as they nailed him to the cross, he bore the weight for Israel's mistakes and Rome's mistakes and every human person's mistakes. He bore the weight of all of it on his shoulders. His shoulders bore their governments. He bears our governments. He takes our sin onto himself and dies for us. 
The government of the world was on his shoulders as he hung on the cross. And now, because God has raised him from the dead and as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and sits in the seat of power, he now has all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth to rule over all nations as Lord and King. He really does have governing authority on his shoulders now and forever. And he is worthy of that authority. And we know that his shoulders can bear the load because of what he accomplished on the cross. Amen. He is also a wonderful counselor. Every king needs a really good counselor. We know this, right? Like Joseph was to Pharaoh or Daniel was to Nebuchadnezzar. Every king needs a miracle-working kind of counselor. This child will be both king and counselor. He will have his own brilliant strategy for dealing with the political issues of the day. He will have his own brilliant military strategy. It looks like foolishness to have a child rule the kingdom, but the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the childishness of God is more mature than humanity's wisest sages. This child will be a miracle-working strategist. He is also mighty God. Mighty here means warrior. He is God and warrior. He is strong. Not only will he have the perfect strategy for dealing with Assyria and evil and empire and sin, he will also have the strength to carry out his strategy. He has enough to defeat all enemies, including evil and sin and death. He has the right strategy and he has the capability of carrying out his strategy. He will defeat evil. He is also everlasting father, which, of course, if you think about it, is a strange title for a child. Child can't be father. Every nation who has a king wants their king to be a good father. We saw this when, when uh, the Thai king, the king of Thailand, died recently. The nation came out and mourned for him because they experienced him as a good father. Every nation wants their king to be a good father. And this child will be a good father. He is mature and caring with a heart big enough to care for everyone in the kingdom. More than that, he will be a father to all nations. All nations will be invited into his care. He will care for everyone, the whole earth. And his kingdom will go on into eternity. Everlasting father. He will be a father not only to his people, but he will be a wise and caring ruler to all nations and his kingdom will have no end. And finally, Prince of Peace. In place of war, there will be peace. That's what we really want, isn't it? We want peace. We long for peace. The weapons of war will become tools for farming as we saw in Isaiah chapter 2. God will take us human beings who love to destroy things and he will make us into people who make things. Gardeners and farmers, just like he intended at the very beginning when he put us in the garden. We will be whole and good just as he created us to be. He is the prince of peace who makes wholeness and peace between human and human, between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female between humanity and creation, between humanity and God, all dividing walls come down, even the walls between Republican and Democrat. And in that vein, I suggest to you over the next several days, find a faithful believer who disagrees with you on how to vote this election. 
and find a way to do two things. First, to listen well to them without accusing them of false motives or of being foolish. And two, find a way to serve them in some small way. Let's demonstrate and act out peacemaking with one another. If you're, if you're voting for Trump, find a Clinton supporter. If you're voting for Clinton, find a Trump supporter. If you're not voting for either of them, I guess you're off the hook. I'm kidding. And this is a good place to make a plug for tomorrow night's prayer service. Come back here uh, in the fireside room, 7 o'clock. We're going to just be praying. We won't be telling you how to vote. There will be no voters' guides. We just want to pray in unity together um, for the sake of, uh, of this election and for the nation. And let's find ways of demonstrating love and making peace with one another in other ways. If you are straight and have all straight friends, find a gay, uh, a gay friend, an L- someone from the LGBT community, and listen to them and find ways to serve them. We can all do that, right? If you have lived in America your whole life, find a refugee and listen to them and serve them. If you are white and have only white friends, please find a black brother or sister and ask them their story. Let me, say it, let me tell you that white Christians, evangelicals in this country, have a lot to learn from our African-American brothers and sisters about endurance and about loving those who might oppress us. And we don't need to agree with everything that Black Lives Matter says to be able to say and demonstrate that Black Lives Matter to us. My conversations with black brothers, hearing their experiences have been eye-opening to me, and I pray that you have opportunities to have your eyes opened as well by people who are different from you. Let's hear each other's stories, let's demonstrate our love for one another, and let's be peacemakers following our Prince of Peace. Okay, these names all taken together, again, they're very strange names for a child. They indicate a very special child, a child who is God himself, Emmanuel. The whole character of an ideal king is listed here. It's not as though he's good on the economy, but a bad military leader, or good at governing, but has terrible character, or he's upright, but totally out of his depth. It's not as though he'll maintain the bureaucracy, but isn't wise or discerning. You might say that every decent ruler wants to be this child. Jesus is the ideal king. We don't need to settle for mediocre rulers because we are ruled by the perfect ruler. We must not compromise ourselves or our faithfulness with corrupt or unwise leaders when we have a perfect leader. Again, this child is not just a child. He is the perfect king who has shown himself to be Lord of lords and king of kings, who has borne the weight of our sin so that he might bear all governing authority on his very capable shoulders. And so we wait for his kingdom to come. And I want to point us to Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, to a beautiful story of waiting for this child. If you know the story, you know Simeon. It's a beautiful story. You remember Joseph and Mary brought eight-day-old Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, just like we dedicated baby David this morning. And Simeon is there, waiting in the temple. And he sees the child, and this this is his response. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, to Simeon, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, 
he took him in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon knew he didn't have to see what Christ was going to become. He knew by looking at the child's face that this child fulfilled everything that Isaiah prophesied back 700 years before this. This is God's fulfillment of his promise. So Simeon is one of my heroes in the faith. He's a good, faithful waiter with eyes of faith, not eyes of fear. We wait for the kingdom and this kingdom will be glorious. As we see in our passage, the increase of government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Justice and righteousness. Isn't that the cry of every heart? A kingdom ruled by justice and righteousness. And if you remember Isaiah chapter 5, the vineyard story we, we preached a few weeks ago, God planted the vineyard and looked for justice. But behold, there was bloodshed. And he looked for righteousness. And there were cries of distress. Here, the child will bring justice and righteousness. He will rule over a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And as our hearts cry out, as we sang earlier, O come, Redeemer of the earth, that's what we're longing for. Justice and righteousness, a kingdom, a king ruling with justice and righteousness. And so we wait for the child to return. He has come. He has inaugurated and brought his kingdom. But the kingdom is still yet to be fulfilled. And so we wait. The kingdom is here and not yet. It's also still coming. The kingdom is here. Jesus has brought the kingdom when he came as a child. He bore our weight on his shoulders at the cross. He established a perfect kingdom as a perfect king. And then he returned to the Father where he rules creation now. If we have eyes of faith to see him, then we will see his activity. He is working today all over the place. And so let's wait with eyes of faith like Simeon waited, watching as God works and moves in the middle of difficult circumstances. Let's keep watching, faithfully worshiping the King who comes as a child. And let's worship Him alone. Let's keep our hearts from giving their allegiances to other kingdoms and other gods. Let's reject anxiety and despair. God is working. So put off eyes of fear, those sunglasses that keep us in the dark, and put on eyes of faith because Jesus is King. In conclusion, if we vote this week, I pray that you will vote in a way that undermines your allegiances to the powers of this world and the evils that these rulers will do to the creation that God made good. I pray that your vote will be a vote that advances justice and righteousness and participates in showing the world that Jesus is your king and that he is king of everyone in the world, whether they choose to acknowledge him or not. I hear many Christian leaders saying to us that it is our civic and Christian duty to vote for one or the other of these candidates because the opposing candidate will cause so much evil and undo so much good. To me, that sounds like eyes of fear, brothers and sisters. We can vote, and if we vote, vote for the kingdom of God. Let's not vote out of fear. Fear blinds us. 
Fear darkens our eyes, and to give in to fear is to continue to walk around in darkness. God has not left us in darkness. He has shined his light upon us in this child. With eyes of faith, we can see that God has given us a king. This king is a perfect king. His kingdom is a powerful, righteous kingdom that will go on into eternity. We do not need to settle for the lesser of evils. Our holy, loving, creative God has given us a king, the child who carries the government on his shoulders, who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. So if you vote, do not vote out of fear. Vote with eyes of faith, watching for how Christ is ruling, watching for how God is moving to grow his kingdom. And more importantly than how you vote is how you live. Will you live with eyes of fear or eyes of faith? Do you believe that God is capable of overcoming all evil, including the daily evils that we face? Do you know that the child has borne the weight of your sin and is ruling from heaven now and forever? Have we stepped out of bondage and into God's light? Will we wait like Simeon, knowing that God keeps his promises, whether it takes 108 years or 700 years or 2,000 years? He is faithful and his promises are good. He is not ruled by our fears. And he will overcome the darkness with his light. So may God bless and encourage you with his light. May we be a people who are faithful to him and to his kingdom as we participate in this world as citizens of heaven. May the child who bore our sin and shame shine brighter and brighter as Lord and King as we wait for the final fulfillment of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. Thank you for your creative work and for sending Jesus to us as the light that breaks through the darkness. Jesus, we praise you as Lord and King. You came as the child and you bore the weight of our sin at the cross. And now you bear all authority over all nations. Holy Spirit, we praise your work in our lives. We pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you would unify your people and help us to wait like your servant Simeon waited, faithfully demonstrating that we follow the one perfect King. We love you and praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.